Uh, The reading is from Exodus chapters 19 and 20, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 19. Israel at Mount Sinai. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So jumping forward to verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. The Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the the house of slavery. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for God's help as we look at his word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. Our Father, we thank you that you do indeed speak and speak to your people. And we pray, Father, as we listen to your voice now in your word, that you would give us hearts ready to listen, minds to be able to concentrate and to understand, and a desire, Father, to live rightly in response. By your Spirit's enabling, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, one of the ways we frequently talk about the Christian life is having a relationship with God. We say, don't we, quite rightly, that the moment you trust in Jesus is the moment you begin a relationship, a personal relationship with God. But what type of relationship are we imagining when we talk about a relationship with God? See, relationships, they differ enormously, don't they? I have a relationship with my wife, but that looks very different to the relationship with my children. And uh, that looks very different to the relationship I have with my parents. And of course, there's relationships with my friends. Uh, Some of those friends I've known longer than my wife even, and even longer than my children. And yet, um, that relationship seems very different to the one I have with my family. And then there are relationships with people we don't even know. I mean, I've got a relationship with my mobile phone contractor, unfortunately, for 12 months, uh, given their service. I have a relationship with my employer at the Church of England. I have a relationship with the people in the community. We have relationships all over the place. Now, the question is, what type of relationship is it that we're having with God? Is he like the mobile phone provider? Is he more like the husband or wife? See, how we answer that question will determine the shape of our day-to-day lives. See, the relationship I have with my mobile phone provider, I don't think about uh, only every time I pick up the phone and can't make a phone call. But otherwise, the contract stays in the drawer and it renews after 12 months. But my relationship with my children governs every minute of every day, from the moment they wake to the moment they sleep. What does it mean to have a relationship with God? What does that look like? Well, that's what these two chapters this morning are really focused on. They're all focused on what it means to have a relationship with God and why and how that should affect us in the day-to-day. Now, of course, these chapters, they're famous, aren't they, for the Ten Commandments. But hopefully we've been seeing uh, throughout Exodus that actually uh, these famous bits are actually um, in a context And the Ten Commandments, unhelpfully, I think, sometimes get separated off in our minds from the narrative that they arise in. Um, Some churches have the Ten Commandments up the front of the church. I think we do, even. And that's not a bad thing, but it does separate it from the uh, story it's embedded in. Because actually, as we look at Exodus, we see that this isn't a detached rule list Uh, This appears as God meets his people on Mount Sinai. Now, why does that matter? Well, here is the point where God is addressing his people directly, where he meets with them, where he enters into a covenant, a formal relationship with them. And here we see that these commandments fit into that relationship. I want us to see this morning, first of all, the reason for this relationship Secondly, the terms of this relationship. And thirdly, the means of this relationship. I'm very sorry for the three points. I do try at my hardest to do four or two, but it never seems to fit uh, the passage. But first of all, the the reason for the relationship. See, we might ask ourselves the question, why doesn't Exodus finish at chapter 19? Why are we only halfway through the book? I mean, the the people are finally um, free from Egypt. Their enemies are finally defeated. It feels like the point where the credits roll up. 
But actually, Exodus isn't even halfway yet, and there are going to be 51 chapters of Israel staying at Sinai. Now, why is that? Well, throughout the book of Exodus, we've seen this repeated idea. We may have missed it. I didn't flag it up, but I've spotted it as we've gone, as I've gone back through now. See, all through this book, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. But here's what he says, let my people go that they may serve me. Now, you don't need to look up all those references. He says pretty much the same thing each time. See, the point is, he doesn't say, let my people go because you shouldn't be enslaving them, or let my people go uh, so they can um, kind of drift, drift off on their own, but let my people go that they may serve me. In other words, freedom here isn't a kind of end in itself. It's freedom to serve God. Now, maybe we think to ourselves, that doesn't sound kind of very attractive, does it? I mean, it sounds like they've kind of gone from one type of slavery to another. I mean, surely the people aren't free. But the Bible never talks about freedom as an end in itself. It always asks the question, freedom to do what? See, freedom, we talk about freedom a lot as a culture, don't we? We, we kind of just set, put it around as a buzzword. But freedom in and of itself isn't necessarily a good thing. A fish in a fish tank thinks to themselves, I guess for four seconds, that they can be free if they drift out the water. But actually, they quickly find that that expression of freedom isn't actually freedom at all. See, freedom here isn't kind of freedom to to do what they want, to drift around in the wilderness, because that would be terrible for them. But actually, it's the freedom to serve their creator. And look at how God describes what it means to serve him. Have a look at chapter 19, uh, verse 5. Now, therefore, he says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, we'll come to that in a moment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, this is far from one slavery to another, is it? See, to serve God, he says, is to be his treasured possession. It's a word that kind of means royal possession. It, think of the kind of crown jewels in the Tower of London under guard, but also on display to show how precious they are. I have here um, my wedding ring, and uh, for me, it's uh, a treasured possession. It's, uh, it's not very uh, valuable, um, so don't mug me on the way home, uh, but it, it is valuable in the sense of what it means. It obviously symbolizes my marriage, but also... Um, we picked out these rings and we engraved a special, special message uh, on the inside. And uh, I wear it all the time. And you get that, you know, that heart-sinking feeling you get when um, I put my hand into the freezer and the ring suddenly disappears. Or um, when I'm washing my hands. Because it's a treasured possession. And here God uses that image to speak of his own people. See, this isn't serving some tyrant like Pharaoh. This is a leader who treasures his people. See, we looked at Pharaoh, didn't we? And he cared so little for the people. He cast their children into the Nile. 
But here is God treasuring every one of his people. But why this relationship? Well, it's not that God just wants to keep his people in a kind of special club. But God wants the world to see that they're special. See, um, he calls them a kingdom of priests. Um, You'll know a priest is a kind of bridge between God and human beings. And the nation of Israel was to be that kind of bridge, that doorway to God, how uh, a fallen world might know God. And they're called a holy nation. The the word holy is uh, a word that describes who God is, separate, God-like, See, this nation is to be a holy nation. But look at what else it says. It says, uh, at the end of verse 5, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. See, when it says all peoples, he's not just sort of um, talking about Israel here. He's got a kind of whole world view. He's saying that actually you will be a holy nation, you will be a kingdom of priests, because actually that's going to affect the whole world. Now, I get holiness isn't kind of very exciting to us, but it's worth seeing this in the context of the whole Bible. Remember back to Genesis 1 and 2, why human beings were created. They were created to rule and subdue the world, to reflect God's character. And here we see that character, uh, that, that, that work, that commission re-established in Israel. But remember that humanity were to do that over the whole world, and it's similar here. Israel is meant to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, so the whole world hears of God's character. There's a story um, of, uh, about British ambassadors abroad. Now, I tried to look into this. I'm not sure how true it is, but, um, so don't you know, shoot me for it, but uh, some of it is true. Uh, and the bit that's true is that British ambassadors abroad apparently drive around in Rolls Royces, which is pretty cool, isn't it? So uh, I read about the Russian um, ambassador, or ambassador in Russia, who's just been delivered a brand new Rolls Royce. Now, that does seem very extravagant, doesn't it? I mean, I guess not many of us own Rolls Royces. I mean, certainly a little bit different to my Citroen. But, uh, The reason they do, I'm told, is because they want to show off. Uh, Not show off about them and their wealth, but show off the country they represent. See, uh, as these ambassadors drive around Russia, the idea is that the Russians look and they think, well, Britain's a cool place because they're driving around a Rolls Royce. Uh, They see the kind of luxury, the engineering, and they think, well, Britain must be like that. Now, I know uh, we might quibble over whether it is, but the point is that this car symbolizes the nation they represent. And it's similar here. As Israel lives in relationship with God, as they reflect his character, well, the whole world's to look at them and think, what a country, what a God. See, a relationship with God is never kind of an end in itself. It's not just a kind of get out of jail free card that we're kind of saved from judgment. Wonderfully, we are. But it's got a purpose. We're to live in holy lives. See, have a look at this from 1 Peter. You'll recognize the language, I'm sure. He says this to the church in the New Testament But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. But that's not all he says. He says this, but that you may proclaim the excellencies, sorry, I can't say the word, excellencies, of him who called you out of darkness into his most marvelous light. See, why have we been called into a relationship with God? Well, Peter says it is to declare God's character, the fact that we've been called out of darkness to his marvelous light. See, in our workplaces, in our families, in our friendship groups, God has called us to a relationship where we will display his character. But what does that look like to, um, to kind of display his character? What does that holiness look like? Well, secondly, we see uh, the terms of this relationship. See, notice again in chapter 19, verse 5, the conditionality of this relationship. He says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Now, what does it mean to obey God's voice, to keep his covenant? Well, that's exactly what we see in chapter 20. Because in chapter 20, verse 1, God speaks to the people directly. They hear his voice. And so God is saying, look, this isn't a relationship where anything goes. It's not a relationship where you kind of make it up as you go along. Here is how you're to be in relationship with me. Here's the terms of that relationship. See, when we hear of kind of obedience and keeping, it feels pretty dull, doesn't it? Our eyes roll. We think, oh, obedience, that's the kind of boring bit of the Christian life. It doesn't sound very attractive. And it can feel like the opposite to freedom. We kind of like the idea, don't we, that Jesus sets us free. We like talking about that because we like the idea of freedom in our culture. We don't like talking about the fact that Jesus has set us free to make us holy. It feels like the opposite of freedom. But actually, I've discovered recently that um, rules or kind of uh, restrictions aren't necessarily the opposite to freedom. I spoke before about my failure to be able to get in the habit of running. Um, For 15 years, I've tried almost every six months to get in the habit of running. I will go out, I will hit it too hard, I will feel ill and uh, feel very sick and never do it again. But actually, for the last three months, I've managed to run three times a week uh, for three months. Uh, It's the first time I've ever done it, and it's, um, yeah, it's great. Now, I don't say that to show off, uh, because I haven't run very far. If you follow me on Strava, you'll see that. Um, But to show you how I've done it, because someone put me onto this kind of couch to 5K thing. And um, if you've never heard of that, it is basically someone just shouting at you to, to run and to walk at the right times. See, the point is that the only reason I've been able to do this is because there's been some sort of constraints put on me because I know I'll be letting down my podcast if I don't go out and do this run. See, the point is, I've experienced that freedom of actually being able to run and not just collapse because of some constraint, because of some obedience. And so for God's people to be truly free, he gives them these constraints so they can become what they're meant to be Now, there are two mistakes, and this is the bit worth listening to. 
because uh, I think we make two massive errors, potentially, as a church uh, when we come to the Ten Commandments. Uh, An old uh, uh, church historian said, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so the doctrine of justification, how we're made right with God, is ever crucified between two opposite errors. Now, what are those errors? Well, the first one is legalism. Legalism. We think that these are the rules I need to do to earn favor with God. If I want to be God's child, if I want him to be favorable to me, well, then I need to be obedient to these rules. And if I don't, he'll be unhappy and disown me. But notice what God says before he speaks anything about obedience. Uh, Have a look at chapter 19, verse 4. He says this about Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice. See, it's not obey my voice and then I bring you out on eagles' wings. It's not obey me and then I'll get rid of the Egyptians for you. It's I have done this work. I bore you. I did this. So then obey. And even in the Ten Commandments, we see this. Have a look at uh, chapter 20, uh, verse 2. This is the kind of um, command before the commandments, the zeroth. Is that a word? Zeroth? Commandment, I guess. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 2. He says this I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, he's not saying, look, I will be the Lord your God. I will take you out of the house of slavery if you keep these commandments. Rather, he's saying, look, I have done this work. I've redeemed you. Now you're to reflect these commandments. See, many people get this wrong, and maybe some of us even listening in today or um, here this morning, I I got this wrong for so many years because I assumed Christianity was about pulling my bootstraps up, sorting my life out, and then God will love me. But actually, it's the opposite way around here, isn't it? We don't accept these, we don't do these commands to get God's favor. We do these commands because he has shown us favor. See, if we get this wrong, we not only put the car before the horse, but we misunderstand the whole gospel. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 9, I can't remember if I've got it uh, quoted there, but he says that Israel made the whole mistake by... um, treating the law as if it was to be pursued by works. And he said that by doing that, they misunderstood the whole point of the law. They didn't get what it was actually aiming at. See, we're never saved because we're obedient. We're saved and then show obedience. See, we're just like Israel in Egypt, in slavery, unable to save ourselves. But then the Lord Jesus God does. See, that's the first mistake, legalism. But the second mistake is license. See, license is to think that obedience doesn't matter because God loves me. See, we think of relationships, don't we, as kind of, oh, they're not about rules, uh, rules and kind of things like that. They kind of crowd out the kind of loving nature of a relationship. And so we think that actually it's all about knowing God and loving God. And we don't care about things like obedience. But actually, the most intimate relationships do.
do have a huge degree of obedience attached to them. How do you get married to someone? Well, you come up the front, don't you? And you say, for better, for worse, for, in, uh, for better, for worse, in, I've done this so many times and I've forgotten it, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in love, uh, sorry, to love and to cherish. Now, when you see the couple up the front saying those marriage vows to one another, who of you thinks to yourself, well, this is taken away from the love of the occasion? Who of you is thinking this is taken away from the love they show for one another? Of course we don't. We look, don't we, intently at them, and we see that just how committed they are to one another. And the point's similar here. See, to show love, well, we show that in obedience. And the same's true, isn't it? Even for informal relationships like friendships, there's a kind of unwritten set of rules about how you engage in friendships. I've got a good friend who's uh, allergic to onions. He can't stand cycling as much as we try and get him away to cycle, and he absolutely hates roller coasters. And so if I surprised him one day and said, look, mate, um, I'm going to go on a cycling weekend to Paris, and I've booked you a ticket. Uh, We're going to spend the day sampling uh, lots of chutneys and lots of onions, and uh, then we're going to go to Disneyland Paris and check out all the roller coasters for three days. That is not a way to show love to him, is it? See, obedience... Is, shown, uh, is a demonstration of love. And God calls people to a relationship where they show obedience to him. Of course, Jesus says this in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He doesn't say that to unsettle us. He doesn't say, if you keep my commandments, I will love you. But he says, look, this is how you know you love me, Will you keep my commandments? Now, I guess there's all sorts of questions about the kind of law and how it plays out in life today, and we're going to come to that next week. But what does this obedience look like? Well, the first four commandments are all about treating God rightly, not having other gods, not representing God in a kind of model or anything else in creation, treating God's name rightly, Uh, Remember, his name is his reputation. It's not uh, speaking lightly about that. Reflecting his purposes in creation by resting. See, they're all about loving God and treating him rightly. And the following six commands are all about treating others rightly. So honoring parents, not disrespecting them. Kind of um, can see some parents nudging their children uh, with an elbow as I say that. Not taking life uh, in vengeance not committing adultery, not sleeping around, not stealing, keeping our hands off other people's property, not coveting, trawling through social media, dreaming of having other people's lives. But why these commands? Why these ten? Why this list? Well, it's worth seeing where these come from, isn't it? See, look at chapter 20, verse 4, and see if you recognize this language. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Or chapter uh, 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. See, this is, again, straight out of Exodus, uh, sorry, Genesis 1 and 2, isn't it? See, to love God is what we're designed to do. 
We're designed to be in relationship with Him. And here is the terms of how that plays out. And to be truly human is to truly treat others as we would want ourselves treated. And so this idea of not murdering, not committing adultery is to kind of stem the tide of the sin that was caused by the fall, that humanity can truly treat one another as it's meant to be. In other words, here in the commandments, isn't a kind of restrictive list of rules? It isn't a to-do list to kind of make us friends with God. Rather, this is the way we become truly human, how we reflect God's character in our love for Him and love for one another. See, this is how the people become the holy nation, the kingdom of priests, the treasured possession. Not through their own morality, not through their own works. We've seen already, haven't we, that it is God who redeems them. But here is how they reflect that relationship with their God. See, it is absolutely true that the moment you trust in the Lord Jesus, and even, you know, it can be done in an instant, you enter into a relationship with God himself. But that relationship isn't kind of for us to define how we want. It is a relationship where we reflect his holiness, and we reflect his holiness in what he says about his voice, through his voice. It's not like the relationship with my mobile phone provider. It's more like the relationship in a marriage. And I wonder, do we see that? It's always worth checking, isn't it? Now, I don't say that to unsettle us, to kind of make us feel worse. Uh, We are saved through God's mercy entirely. But sometimes I do wonder if the pendulum in my life goes too far one way. And I think to myself, it all matters, obedience uh, is kind of nice to have. If it comes, fair enough. But actually, God has saved me for relationship with him. And to be in relationship with him, he cares about us reflecting his holiness. But there is one more aspect that is important we uh, consider. I know I said the other bit was really important, but this is really important as well. See, thirdly, we see here the means of our relationship. See, we asked, didn't we, why doesn't Exodus finish at chapter 19? But we could equally ask, why doesn't the Bible finish at chapter 19? Because here, the story goes full circle, doesn't it? We see creation, we see creation undone in the fall, and now we see that re-established in these people who know God and reflect his character. But there is a strong hint here that actually something more is needed. See, the people are told to come near the mountain, and God descends on it. And just picture in your head how this would have looked. Chapter 19, verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. It's absolutely terrifying, isn't it? I was watching a documentary a couple of days ago about um, the early nuclear bomb testing that took place in the ocean. And very sadly, they got British soldiers out in the sea to to kind of watch these uh, nuclear tests go off. 
And one of them spoke about it. He said the light was completely terrifying. You'd have your eyes closed, your hands over your face, but it would just come straight through. And he said he saw grown men terrified in the face of what they saw. And you can just see that reaction, can't you? Look at chapter 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. See, it's not the kind of ending you were expecting, I guess. See, this is meant to be a good moment. This is the moment where God enters into a relationship with his people. He begins his covenant. But this is far from a kind of new Eden. This is terrifying. And it's terrifying because there is a sense here in which the people know they're not holy. They can't reflect God's character. See, these commandments are the path to freedom, the path to showing God's character, but every one of them fills them with terror. And as you look through Israel's history, you see that every one of them gets broken. And the same is true for you and me. These aren't commandments we can look at and kind of puff ourselves up. See, each one of these commandments convicts us, doesn't it? It shows us how we've not been holy, how we've not reflected God's character. But wonderfully, there is another component here. See, uh, in this narrative, I don't know if you noticed when it was read out, Moses kind of sounds like he's on an escalator going up and down. It goes up in chapter 19, verse 3. It goes down in 19, verse 7. It goes up in 19, verse 8. It goes down in 19, verse 14. Have you got all these references? Uh, Up in 19, verse 20 down in 90 verse 25, and then into the cloud in 20 verse 21. Now, remember, this is an 80-year-old man. I mean, this is not going to be kind on the knees, is it? Why is Moses going up and down, up and down, up and down this mountain? Well, look at what God says in chapter 19 verse 23. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. For you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bring an Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. See, the people can't get near God's presence. They can go up to the mountain, but there's a barrier restricting their access And that's understandable, isn't it? Because their lack of holiness would mean that they would be destroyed if they went into God's presence. But wonderfully, God brings Moses into his presence. See, the people have a mediator. And the people want that. They don't want to hear God's voice because it is so terrifying. And so they say to Moses, you speak to us. You represent us. You make us safe. We can't stand this feeling of holiness. And of course, Moses is pointing to our true and greater mediator. One who is able to enter into God's presence without fear and bring us to God. See, we've got a mediator who too went up the mountain 
not Mount Sinai, but the mount outside Jerusalem, where he was crucified, where he died, before rising again. And he didn't just enter near the dark cloud of God's holiness. He died under it, meeting the wrath of God's holy justice. And the crazy thing is, he didn't need to, because every one of these commandments describes him. These are not commandments he breaks. These are not commandments uh, that reveal his lack of holiness. Far from it, every one of them, he did perfectly. But he died. He died as an unholy one, outside the city, so that you and me might have this relationship with God that we need not fear God because of our lack of holiness, because of our failure to obey, but we can be confident because of what Jesus has achieved for us. Uh, The writer to the Hebrews puts it this way, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See what he's saying? Through the Lord Jesus, we can draw near, not with fear, but with complete confidence. We have a relationship with God wonderfully in the Lord Jesus. And we've seen, haven't we, the purpose for that relationship. It is always about reflecting his holiness. And I wonder if we've seen that about our relationship. For me, it's been a helpful reminder to get me back onto track and to think why I have been saved. But secondly, we've seen that this relationship carries terms. It's not for us to kind of define how God is and what he likes and what he doesn't like. Actually, he calls us, Lord, the Lord Jesus does, to love him, to love his commandments. And again, it's been helpful for me to just revisit that and think, do I care passionately about reflecting his holiness? There are many things that kind of take up my time. Is becoming more like Christ one of them? And thirdly, do we look at the right person? If that's where we stay, we're just going to feel utterly condemned, aren't we? Because our obedience is never going to reflect God's holiness. But wonderfully, in Christ, we have one who has obeyed for us, makes us holy, and enables us to draw close to God without fear. Let's pray. Forgive us, Father, when we think lightly of our relationship with you, when, Father, we take away from your holiness or don't desire to reflect that in our lives. But we thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus who has gone before us and done the work so that we can be in relationship with you. And so, Father, please fix our eyes on him. Cause us, Father, to see his work more uh, deeply and we pray father that we would be those both individually and as a church who seek to live our out our relationship with you
For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And one of the things that we're now able to do is to uh, watch a short video interview with two of our members, uh, Chisholm and uh, Tsola. So uh, let's sit back and watch this together. I've invited Chisholm and Sola to be interviewed today because they joined St Mary's last year and um, I just thought you'd like to get to know them a little. So first of all, could you please introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your background? Hi, uh, Janet. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Shola Eisen and this is my wife. Uh, yeah, Chisholm Eisen. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, we are um, originally from Nigeria, uh, but moved uh, to the UK for uh, studies and have stayed ever since. Um, we sort of moved down to um, Basingstoke as I got a job in Alton uh, working as an engineer down there. Uh, however, I was doing the commute, which was a bit unrealistic between Basingstoke and Great Yarmouth. Um, we prayed about it and just after the first lockdown, um, made the move um, sort of permanently uh, to Basingstoke. And, uh, um, so I've just carried on working for the same company from Norwich. So thankfully, I gave the opportunity to work remotely. <laughs> That's yeah. great. Yeah. And so tell us how tell us how you became Christians. Um, okay. So for myself, um, I'm from um, a Christian home. So both my parents um, are Christians, and they always encouraged um, myself and my siblings uh, to going to church um, on Sundays, and um, we also had family Bible studies. Um, but I think for me, as I grew older, I started to notice um, sort of um, a gap in in my life, and that that gap could be filled, or is filled by um, the knowledge of Jesus Christ and just following Him. Um, mm. So somewhere in there, I, I sort of made the decision, and I haven't looked back since. Mm. Um, for myself, yeah, um, fortunately enough to have grown up with you know with Christian parents. Um, and the same encouragement. I can't exactly say when it is that I did give my life to Christ, but it was that, um, you know, getting older and just wanting to know what it meant to live for Christ and you know, live my life for him. And mm. that's just been the journey um, for me till, till date. Yeah. That's great. And so coming to Basingstoke, finding a church would have been very important and um, quite tricky, I guess, during a lockdown. So tell us how you went about that. So, <laughs> um, so um, we were primarily looking for a Bible-believing church, um, you know, where the word of God, you know, is the truth um, or what we follow as a truth. So we were fortunate enough to be recommended um, St. Mary's by our um, the pastor and wife at the previous church. Um, and we, you know, came in a few times when we could still interact with people. Um, and I think that was it for us. Um, we, we were convinced um, and then also just being able to connect with people um, of our age group and other people as well and being encouraged by people mm. we found that really helpful even in the midst of a lockdown um, mm -hmm. having people engage with and connect with us and yeah building a yeah. family of, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah having that Christian fellowship is is fine it's very important even if it's not the same as we would be used to and yeah. uh, I think you've got involved in quite a lot of things connect I believe yeah, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. we've seen you at um on prayers on, on on Wednesday, Wednesday church prayers, and even yeah. on Zoom coffee. So yeah, <laughs> it's been great because people have got to know you even during the lockdown. Um, yeah. But I'm but I'm so pleased that you've been willing to be interviewed today. I'm sure people will 
be very pleased to have met, heard a little bit more about you. And uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. thanks.